Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Marin McKenna will join us to discuss the MRSA epidemic. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, there's an emerging epidemic that has all but gone unnoticed in the public eye, but maybe the most pressing medical issue since AIDS, MRSA, or drug-resistant staph, is threatening our well-being and is likely that it could have been prevented. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Marin McKenna. Ms. McKenna is an award-winning science writer whose work includes Beating Back the Devil, a journalist for National Magazines, and the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. She has penned the new book, Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA, and she uh, explores this issue for a general audience. Ms. McKenna, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Happy to be here. What exactly is MRSA? So some people may have heard it called MRSA. I noticed that scientists and researchers tend to pronounce the acronym MRSA, but civilians tend to pronounce it as though it's a word, so MRSA. But either way, there's a lot of information packed into that acronym. The the SA stands for Staphylococcus aureus, which most people will just know as Staph, which is an incredibly common bacterium. Probably a third of the human population walks around with Staph, regular drug-sensitive Staph living on our skin and in a sort of commensal state with us, doesn't bother us so long as it stays on the surface of our skin, but causes very serious illness if it can get inside the body through a cut or a scrape. And it's always been a very serious hospital infection. In fact, penicillin was discovered when penicillium mold blew onto a dish of staph. So staph and antibiotics have a long interaction. The the MR part of MRSA or MRSA is a little more complex. The M stands for methicillin, which was the first semi-synthetic penicillin, the first drug that was developed from the natural penicillin molecule once organisms started to become resistant to penicillin in the late 1950s. You can't even buy methicillin anymore, but it gave its name and, and more importantly, its central molecular structure to dozens of antibiotics that we use every day in medicine, almost anything ending in illin, lots of cephalosporums, monobactams, large numbers of antibiotics. And over about 50 years, staph has become resistant to all of them. So you can see that when we say MRSA, what what we're talking about is a bacterium that's very common, that exists on very many of us, that can cause virulent disease, and now is resistant to very many antibiotics that we use in medicine every day. Overall, it's, it's quite a troubling story. 
a common bacterium that's resistant to pretty much every uh, antibiotic we have. For the most serious infections, the ones that will put you in an ICU, there can be only one or two antibiotics that still work. The one that people tend to have heard of is vancomycin, which is an old drug. It goes back to the original antibiotic research programs in the 1950s. It, it was refined from an organism that was scooped off the jungle floor in Borneo by Eli Lilly back in the 1950s. And vanco, as people call it for short, still works, but it has significant side effects, and none of the few drugs that have come after it are, are some of them are as good though they all have limitations but none of them are really any better what happens if you get such a staph infection so the important thing to remember is that staph was always a virulent organism and what's happened now is it has married resistance to virulence so staph depending on the strain that you have um, or MRSA I should say because there are other strains of staph that do other things it can cause widespread, you know, it can cause septicemia, bacteremia, blood infection. It can cause osteomyelitis, infections of the bone, endocarditis, infections of the valves of the heart. And the community strains of MRSA cause very serious abscesses and skin infections that re can require surgical repair. And some of the most troubling and newer developments is that MRSA or MRSA can cause what's called necrotizing pneumonia, which is a, a bacterial pneumonia that seems to follow after the initial assault of a flu infection and is very rapidly moving. And it causes necrotizing fasciitis, which most people know as a flesh-eating disease. Because of the drugs that we've had, we've kept it in check. Yeah, right. So MRSA is challenging because it kind of went stepwise from drug to drug to drug. And it really gained a march on us for a couple of different reasons. First, because it was initially almost entirely a hospital infection. I mean, methicillin came on the market in 1960. The first resistant infections, infections resistant to methicillin, were recorded in a British hospital in 1961, and the first ones in the United States in 1968. And until about the mid-1990s, it was only a hospital bug. And so they thought they had its measure, and they assumed it was going to be resistant, and they worked primarily on attempts to control it via infection control. Then in the, the late 1990s, a group actually at the University of Chicago, Chicago is very important to the, the MRSA story, noticed that they were seeing infections in kids who had never been in a hospital. The, the kids had come in via the ER, and if you think about that, an ER is a door that only swings one way. Once you're in a hospital, you don't go back to the ER. So these were kids with no involvement with healthcare up to that point. And the important thing was their MRSA had different resistance patterns. So the resistance that had been recorded for hospital MRSA had sort of shifted around and in some cases dropped from the community variety, which then started picking up additional resistances of its own it was, as it was exposed in this outside world setting to even more drugs. Wow. So it was an interaction between this hospital MRSA with the staff at large that led to even more resistant MRSAs. Yeah, because there have not been very many researchers looking at this, I'm, I'm really not clear at this point whether what, the, the hospital strain and the community strain are, are slightly genetically different. And so at some point, did the hospital strain wander into the outside world and, and manage to persist? It, it had, there were some brief outbreaks where it had wandered out of hospitals in the 1980s, but it always died out quite fast. But did it this time manage to persist in the community environment? Or is it some sort of convergent evolution that that a second strain of staff found its way into the community um, with similar resistance patterns. No one is really quite clear. 
but certainly now there have been these parallel epidemics, and, and many people will say that the community epidemic is actually what's really kind of driving the bus right now, because if you compare the 19,000 deaths and 370 or so thousand hospitalizations. You know, so there were always these hospital outbreaks from the 1960s up through the 1980s. And then in 19, about 1996, some physicians at the University of Chicago noticed that they were seeing kids who had infe- MRSA infections who had never been in the hospital. And what was interesting about those was that the bug was differently resistant. And pretty clearly, it was not just the hospital bug that had briefly wandered outside the hospital, but something different was going on. Exactly what the origin of that is is still disputed. But as that second strain then began to spread in the community, it was exposed to different drugs, to drugs that are used in the community versus the ones that are used in ICUs, and developed different resistance patterns, and is also now becoming very multi-drug resistant. And some people feel that it's this community strain, this second epidemic of MRSA, that's really kind of driving the bus right now, because though there are 19,000 deaths and about 370,000 hospitalizations every year for the most serious forms of MRSA, there are probably more than 7 million primary care and ER visits for the community strain, which gives you a sense of the size of the pool of resistance that's percolating out there. Hmm. Just more of a chance for it to develop that kind of resistance in such a huge pool. Exactly. And, you know, when you think of all the variety of strategies that bacteria have for acquiring resistance, you know, not only inheritance, but transmission by phage and and sucking up the DNA of lysed bacteria in something like a manure lagoon, you know, it's it's very exciting and troubling. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a third epidemic that you talk about in the book, that of being MRSA coming up through the food system. Right. And this, I, um, I have to say, as a disease geek, I love this story, though if you want exciting and troubling... This is about as exciting and troubling as it could be. And what is interesting about it also is that the acceptance of this story right now is this is another sort of disputed story, and it really recapitulates how in the 1990s medicine really didn't accept that there was a community epidemic of MRSA. They thought it was only hospital. Well, now we have a livestock-associated epidemic of MRSA, and a lot of people are not quite believing in it yet, but I think the science is really strong. So, so what happened is about six years ago now, a child in the Netherlands, which happens to have really strict control of MRSA in its hospital was going in for surgical repair of a birth defect, a heart defect. And she was tested at the door of the hospital, as they do there, for MRSA carriage and was found to be carrying a strain that didn't really show up right on the standard typing tests. And since there's such a low prevalence in that country, the infection control folks wanted to know where this was coming from, and they checked her family, and her family had it. They checked her family's friends. They all had it. They checked what the family did. They all turned out to be pig farmers, and the pigs on those families' farms were harboring this strain, which was a Staph aureus strain, which is unusual because every mammal just about has its own strain of staph, and aureus is the one that's supposed to be more or less unique to humans, though we do share it with some other beings. Um, Pigs have a different staph strain, so they shouldn't have had staph aureus. They did. And 
the, the signal that was particularly alarming was that this strain it didn't have all of the resistance factors of the hospital strain or the community strain, but it was resistant to tetracycline, which is generally not used against staph in humans, but is very commonly given to animals in agriculture. And the Netherlands has had a fairly recent conversion from small-scale family farms to what we think of as big industrial-style farms. And since that first finding in 2004, when no one in that family was being made sick by it, there have been cases of illness, community illness, hospital illness, hospital outbreaks, nursing home outbreak, first just in the Netherlands, then in other countries in the European Union, most recently illness among hospital patients, surgical patients in Canada, people who had no connection whatsoever to, to livestock raising or farming. And it's been found being carried by pigs and pig workers in Iowa here in this country, only in Iowa because Iowa is the only place that has looked so far. It may, in fact, be very, more prevalent than we know of. Um, I would say it almost certainly is, but, you know, not looking for something is a good way to not find it. <laughs> so what is being done to look at the epidemic? Anything in this country or, uh, or abroad? Not enough. Um, the place that has done the most specifically for the livestock-associated epidemic is the Netherlands because they take MRSA so seriously there. They actually have added to their national infection control regulations that if you are a farmer or a farm veterinarian, you join a select group of people who are presumed walking in the door of a hospital to be a high infection control risk, and you are put straight into isolation until they have checked you to prove that you are MRSA-free. There are a few other countries in the European Union that do that. None of them, that is to say, they follow that protocol for keeping their hospitals MRSA-free. None of the others have actually added veterinarians or farm workers to the suspect class. There is beginning to be surveillance in the EU for this livestock-associated strain. It is being very much resisted in this country. Uh, here, we still don't really believe in this story, but we still haven't really gotten a handle just as a public health system on how serious MRSA is at all. And our surveillance, even on the human side, really isn't good. If I had to make an argument for policy steps we should take to respond to these overlapping epidemics, one of the things I would say is we could start by really counting it better because then we'd know what strategies to deploy and how much money we really ought to appropriate to take care of this. Is increasing public awareness also part of that as well? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. When I talk to people about how prevalent MRSA is and how there are these overlapping epidemics, pretty predictably, people get kind of shaky on me and they feel kind of paranoid and paralyzed, which is not my intention, though it is a scary story. I mean, even as somebody who all my career has been scary disease girl, I find this a scary story. There are individual protective steps that people can take, some of them as simple as, you know, really being good about washing your hands. That doesn't solve the larger problem of the emerging epidemic, but it does make people more aware. And once people are aware and concerned, then maybe they do things like call on their public representatives and ask for legislation or find the courage when they're in a hospital to confront anyone who comes into their room to say, did you wash your hands before you approached my bedside? Which unfortunately is something that you know, 160 years after Ignaz Semmelweis proved that hand washing was a good thing for hospital personnel to do, we still have to remind them. Hmm. Is it just lax oversight that's led to the emergence of MRSA, or how did we get to this point? 
we were talking a few minutes ago about bacterial strategies for acquiring resistance. Resistance is inevitable. I actually have a T-shirt with a, a Staph aureus on it that says, you know, resistance is futile. They, the bacteria will always win. They produce a generation every 20 minutes. It takes us 10 years to get a new drug to market, not to mention a billion dollars. So if, if we are relying only on the technological fixes, we should assume they're always going to get ahead of us. But there are the other things we have done sort of as a society that probably contribute to the more rapid emergence of resistance. And agriculture is one. We give literal tons of antibiotics to farm animals in this country, largely because you know, our, our prime value for agriculture has been making food, especially protein, cheaper. Protein is so incredibly cheap beef, chicken, compared to what our grandparents used to eat or our great-grandparents. You know, they, uh, my gr- grandmother would have thought a, a chicken on a Sunday was a really big deal. And now, you know, you can eat wing, you know, five-cent wings every night. So, and it's antibiotics that allow it to do that, uh, allow us to do that to make protein so cheap. But it's not only the fault of agriculture. You know, we, probably 50% of the antibiotics that are given in primary care every year are used inappropriately. And some of that is because we haven't done a good enough job with continuing medical education for frontline physicians so that they know where resistance is occurring and and they're giving the right drugs. But also we've kind of trained the public to believe that the appropriate way that you end a medical encounter in primary care is with a prescription. And if you don't get a prescription, you sort of feel like you're not really done. And when you combine that expectation with the kind of managed care pressure that scores a doctor badly if he or she spends more than X number of minutes on a patient, five minutes good, eight minutes bad, you can see how having the conversation in which a physician has to explain to a, explain to a patient that an antibiotic is not appropriate. Three days of watchful waiting to see what caused this otitis media is appropriate. You know, you can see how that encounter wouldn't necessarily go well and why people would just throw up their hands and say, oh, yeah, okay, I'm writing you a prescription. Get out of my office. I have someone else to see. We're certainly at, at a point where MRSA is on the cusp of really becoming a major epidemic. What do we have to combat? Are there new antibiotics coming down the line? There are some new antibiotics coming out. One of the ones that, uh, there's a story actually that I tell in the book about a relatively new antibiotic in the past couple of years called daptomycin. It's another one of those drugs whose initial molecule actually goes back to the 1950s. This one was found in the mud on Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark is supposed to have landed. (laughs) And it it had a completely unique mechanism, and, and it took the bacteria a while to get used to it, but resistance to it is now developing. There's a medical specialty society called the Infectious Diseases Society of America that keeps surveying pharmaceutical manufacturers to see what they've got. And uh, no one is backing away from making drugs generally, but antibiotics are becoming a tinier and tinier proportion of the new drug licenses brought forward every year. They're not very cost-effective to make, and because resistance will develop, they don't actually stay on the market for very long, so it's very hard to get your investment back. Um, We'll always need new drugs because there will always be the most serious infections. We need drugs that are less toxic than the old drugs we're turning to now, but probably have to do more to conserve the drugs we have by changing policies around things like antibiotic use in human and in, in animal agriculture so that we don't run out of those new drugs so fast. Somewhat paralyzing, as you as you mentioned earlier, to learn of such an epidemic. What is something the general public can do or, or think about in terms of dealing with the emergence of MRSA? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the sad thing to say is that almost all of us are at risk. 
because a third of the population walks around with Staph aureus on themselves every day. The most recent estimate for MRSA is, which dates back to 2004, was 1.5% of the population, which at the time was almost 4.5 million people. So a lot of us are are having, you know, silent carriage of this. And what turns it over into an active infection is still somewhat unpredictable and not fully understood. But there are some situations you can watch for where if you are a carrier, your risk increases. And there are things like if you live in a very crowded environment, so for instance, people who live in military barracks are very vulnerable to this. If you are in a place where your hygiene is going to be compromised and jails are a great example of this, a really troubling sort of churn of people who go into jail, develop MRSA carriage or MRSA infection, and then come back back out to their communities because our jails are so full that we do a lot of, of discharging of people. And then they bring that infection with them and become sort of a vector to the community. Skin-to-skin contact makes a lot of difference. And, you know, every fall, almost without fail, there's a bloom of stories of infections in kids, skin infections, sometimes very serious, and sometimes children die, and they die of this very rapidly. And often it coincides with the return to school because kids are doing school sports again. And there's actually a a really interesting study from a few years ago where, where the CDC looked at the different positions on a football team and tried to figure out of all those kids crashing together in the the late summer heat in practice, who's most at risk? And it turned out to be the kids who have the most skin-to-skin contact and tackles like cornerbacks, but quarterbacks very seldom get MRSA. And the final thing is, is that contaminated surfaces can be a danger as well, which is not only things like bed rails and curtains in a hospital, but also benches in a gym. Myself, it's in the four years that I've been working on this book, I started wearing long pants to the gym. I never wear shorts anymore. <laughs> well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just wondering if maybe you have some final words regarding MRSA. Awareness is key, but we re- there really are things that We need our institutions to do for us because we cannot do them ourselves as a population. We need better surveillance. We need to count this better. There's a couple of different pieces of legislation in Congress right now that would look carefully at the way that antibiotics are used in this country in human and animal medicine. I think that requires a second look. The drug companies say they need better support for how they develop antibiotics. As a journalist, I'm a little skeptical of being too sympathetic to drug companies, but it's pretty clear that the market is voting and that fewer antibiotics are coming on the market, and we need to find some stimulus for that. Overall, I think the most important thing is that people just be aware of this. The reason that MRSA got such a march on us is because it was kind of divided among a lot of silos in our society between medicine and and public health, between hospital care and primary care, between human medicine and veterinary medicine. And it's an argument for taking a more sort of ecological view of health so that we understand that, you know, that there are things that cross across these silos and that, that sort of slide by our attention because they have through multiple eyes without raising anybody's awareness too high. Well, the new book is called Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA, MRSA. Ms. McKenna, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. And you were just listening to Marin McKenna discussing the MRSA epidemic. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. People live in their lives for you on TV. They say they're better than you and he'll agree. He says, hold my calls from behind those cold big walls. come here, boy, there ain't nothing for free. Doctor's bill, a lawyer's bill, another cute cheap thrill. You know you love him if you put him in your will, but 
Alright, well, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Can Antibiotics Cure It? So, for the following five items in popular culture, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if they were a disease, could antibiotics cure it? Ms. McKenna, you ready to play the game? <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Alright, here we go. Can antibiotics cure it? Number one, a reality TV show. You know, sadly, I think reality TV shows are closer to a fungus, so probably not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number two is U.S. public health insurance. Oh, um, does it need to be cured? I think we need to give antibiotics to that. I mean, public health insurance might be a good thing. I think so. Uh, all right. Number three is uh, college football's BCS system. The I have no idea what that is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's the much maligned system for determining the championship. Anyway, we can move on. <laughs> Uh, number four is Texas Hold'em Poker. Oh, you know what? That's definitely viral. So <laughs> antibiotics are not going to have anything to do with that. Okay. All right. And finally, number five, can antibiotics cure it? It's the pop star Lady Gaga. Ooh, even more viral. Um, you know, I think, anti I think uh, Lady Gaga is bigger than all of us. We don't have an antibiotic big enough to take her on. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Well, Ms. McKenna, I want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around, playing your game, and, of course, uh, again, talking about your book, Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>